Please turn to Daniel chapter 5. While you're turning, the date was October 12th, 539 B.C. 36 years had passed since the events of chapter 4, which ended at 575 B.C. The great king Nebuchadnezzar had died in 562 B.C. Although he had reigned for 43 years, his empire would survive him by only 23 years. He was succeeded by his son, Amel Marduk, who reigned two years before being assassinated by Neriglaser, his brother-in-law. It's being sound less like the Babylonian royal family and more like the Sopranos. Neriglaser ruled four years, and then his son, Labashi Marduk, became king while only a child. He ruled for only nine months before being beaten to death by a group of, of conspirators. One of the conspirators, Nabonidus, that's the Greek form of his name, Nabonaid is his uh, Babylonian name, means Nebo is exalted. He was appoint, one of those conspirators was appointed king in the place of the poor child that was beaten to death. After reigning three years, though, he appointed his son Belshazzar co-regent. Belshazzar, by the way, means may the god Bel protect the king. Turned out didn't work very well in his case. Uh, for 13 years, Nabonidus chose to live in Tama, Arabia, leaving Belshazzar as the de facto king of Babylon. Nabonidus returned only in 540 B.C. because of the rising threat of Cyrus of Persia. On the night of October 12th, the Persian army under Cyrus was on the march. A few days earlier, the Persians had taken the city of Opus that is about 50 miles north of Babylon on the Tigris River. Nabonidus had been leading the Babylonian forces at Ophus, they had, but had ended up fleeing to Borsippa, 17 miles south of Babylon, where he was later captured, when the Babylonians were soundly defeated by the Persians. On October 11th, 539 B.C., the city of Sippar surrendered without a fight. On October 12th, 539 B.C., the Persian army was encamped around the city of Babylon. However, the Babylonians, on the other hand, had reason to feel secure. Their great city was unlike no other in the ancient world. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, the city was 14 miles square. And its outer walls were 87 feet thick. The wall had towers reaching 100 feet above the top of the wall. And the top of the wall was 350 feet high. That's a big wall. <laughs> it was thick enough that four chariots could ride side by side on the top of the wall. Now, some have accused Herodotus of a little bit of exaggeration. Okay, fine. Cut it in half. It's still uh, the greatest city of the ancient world. Nothing was like Babylon for fortifications problem that ancient cities always had, and I know Jerusalem did, they dug a tunnel 
to water to avoid this problem is when your enemy casts up a siege around you, around you, you have trouble getting water. Well, you can go a long time without food, but you can only go three or four days without water before you start feeling really bad effects from it. They didn't have that problem. The Euphrates River flowed right through the center of town. And they thought their water supply is secure. They had food stores, incredible food stores, abundant food stores. So in summary, Babylon was built to withstand a siege of 20 years. By that time, they figured any potential enemy would get tired and go home. <laughs> they would simply outlast them. And that brings us down to today, the handwriting on the wall. We're in the part of Daniel that has a particular message for the Gentile world. And in the last chapter, we saw how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar's pride. God showed that he is greater than any world power that he can humble, the most mighty. In this chapter, Belshazzar is going to learn the same lesson, but he's going to learn it the hard way. As they always say in the movies, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. Well, Belshazzar did it the hard way. Chapter divides into two parts, pretty characteristically we've seen of these, of these records. The first part is about the ruler, in this case Belshazzar. And the second part, second part is about Daniel and his response. Now, we begin then with the Persian army camped around Babylon. And the Babylonians, thinking they're secure, are holding a banquet. It says in verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels which had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar held a feast for a thousand nobles, but not just the nobles. The nobles, their friends, their families, their wives, their concubines. It was a huge crowd. Now, it was large, but the size of the feast actually is not unheard of. Um, we have historical records of Persian and Assyrian monarchs both holding feasts for tens of thousands of people. They, they knew how to party. <laughs> this may have been the time for a regular festival, the harvest festival, some have conjectured. We don't really know, because we don't know all of the festivals in Babylon. But it was certainly a show of confidence in the security of Babylon. What, more, what would better say, I am secure, I am confident, than having a feast while the enemy is camped around your walls? So after Belshazzar had been drinking, and I think it says in the text that he had tasted the wine, I think he more than tasted it with the decisions he was making this evening. After he had been drinking, he ordered the vessels that had been taken from Jerusalem to be brought in and used for drinking. These were the vessels that were taken out of the temple of God. They may even have had inscribed on them 
Kadosh Ladonai, you know, holy to the Lord. Uh, and these gold and silver vessels were handed out to everybody to drink. This was an attempt, perhaps, to show the superiority of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, over the god of Israel. The idea in the ancient world was, well, we defeated you. That means our god or gods were stronger than your god or gods. Or maybe he was just drunk. But in any case, it was blasphemy. They were taking something that was set apart for the Lord and using it for common use. By the way, when it says that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, uh, had taken those from the temple, those vessels from the temple, the term father can refer to a more distant ancestor like a grandfather or even sometimes a political predecessor who's not related to you at all. Um, this has been translated by a couple of translations as his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and one translation as his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Bel Belshazzar's father was actually Nabonidus, who, remember, had just got himself defeated by the Persians and was running and hiding south of Babylon. Um, leaving his son with a real mess. <laughs> The vessels from Jerusalem temple were brought as commanded. Those in attendance began to use them for drinking. Now in so doing, Belshazzar is actually breaking a law, a decree that goes all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar. What had Nebuchadnezzar decreed after his experiences? He decreed the God of the Jews was to be respected. And anybody that didn't, their house was to be reduced to rubble and they were to be drawn and quartered. So He's circumventing his predecessor while claiming his, uh, his descent from him. In addition to the drinking, though, they did something else that really crossed the line. They praised the gods, the idols that they had. Well, what, what Nabonidus and Belshazzar had done, and they had taken the gods from the surrounding Babylonian cities and brought them into the city of Babylon for self safekeeping. And so they had idols galore. And they probably brought them in as well. Um, these aren't real gods, of course. They're made out of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But in course of their drinking, before they would take a drink, they would pour out a few drops on the floor. It's called a libation. In honor of a particular god. So they were probably, you know, in honor of Marduk, drip, 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 and then they'd drink. That, uh, that process, as it went on then, just increased the sacrilege. Not only are they using holy things for common purposes, but they're using them in pagan worship. And by doing that, they exhausted divine patience. You can push and push and push, and God is slow to judge. But there comes a time where you've gone too far. And God's judgment falls. This next section I call Belshazzar's mystifying message from a menacing hand. I couldn't find all M's. I was trying very hard. <laughs> Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. 
Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. So while they're in the process of this sacrilege, what should appear on the wall but a disembodied or severed hand? And it starts to write in the, pla- in the white plaster on the wall. Now, severed right hands, strangely enough, were used to count fallen foes. And if you want a body count of the enemy, they went around with the sword, cut off the right hand. Why, presumably nobody who's still alive is going to let you do that. So that was they. Then they all all they had to do was count the hands. So uh, might be the origin of the of the saying, "Give me a hand." I don't know. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, the severed hand appears and starts to write on the wall. So they would normally, because severed hands are used to count fallen foes, that would be a sign of victory. Strangely enough, in that culture. However. This hand was very, very much alive and it's writing. So the effect then gets reversed. It's kind of similar to if you had a decapitated head of an enemy and all of a sudden it starts to speak. Make the hair stand up on your head, wouldn't it? By the way, archaeologists have excavated this hole. It measured approximately 170 feet by 55 feet. That's like the center section of the White House for size. The walls were mostly made of blue glazed brick, which the Babylonians were very fond of. They had this motif, blue glazed brick with, uh, with yellow uh, lions embedded in it periodically. But immediately behind the platform where the king would sit was a plastered wall, exactly as we would think from Daniel's account. And that plastered wall then was where the hand was writing. And it was writing in full view of the king. He couldn't have missed it. I mean, it's like there. So the king was extremely frightened. He was overwhelmed. He was not able to control his thoughts nor his body. Uh, his <laughs> I love the way the King James puts it. This is thundering... Uh, thundering Victoria, I mean Elizabethan era language when it says his knees smote one against the other. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed they did. He was, his knees were knocking. It's also been translated his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. He couldn't stand up. He was so frightened. The king called for his wise men. Now, he offered them a purple robe, a golden chain, and most importantly, authority as a third ruler of the kingdom. Now, purple dye was really expensive. They had to get it from, sea, uh, from uh, shellfish. And um, because it was so expensive, only royalty wore purple clothing. So to have purple robes is a big deal. 
the chain was most likely a chain of office that reflected the position of the person wearing, the, wearing it. They would wear it around their neck. And the position that he's being offered is the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, some have asked, well, how come they said third ruler? That's because that was the highest office that Belshazzar had to offer. He's the second in the kingdom, being co-regent with his father. And Nabonidus was the king, and therefore first in the kingdom. A matter of fact, this is another one of those instances where, for the longest time before archaeology caught up with it, skeptics were very uh, doubtful of the accuracy of Daniel's account. Saying, well, we know that last Babylonian king was Nabonidus. So, who's this Belshazzar? That's obviously made up. And then we found a, a uh, cylinder that Cyrus had inscribed that detailed all, uh, all the details of the capture of Babylon. And we found out, oh, there is a Belshazzar. And then when we started excavating Babylon, we found literally hundreds of clay tablets with Belshazzar's orders on them and things like that. So, you know, he's very much historical, but for, the, for you know, oh, from about 1800 to close to 1900, skeptics would point to that and say, oh, obviously not historical. Well, obviously they were wrong. They just hadn't caught up with the archaeologists yet. So, the Babylonian wise men totally failed. Surprise, surprise. We haven't seen this before. Anybody have a sense of deja vu when I read that? You know, we've seen that in chapter 2, seen it in chapter 4. It's kind of like, you know, what are these guys good for anyway? <laughs> if I were a Babylonian king, I think, you know, I would probably have followed through on what it Nebuchadnezzar was suggesting in chapter 2. Let's just kill them all and start over because these guys are, no, are worthless. They never can figure anything out. Um, the failure of the Babylonian wise men, though, just added to Belshazzar's terror. Now he's really afraid. Because there's this enigmatic message on the wall written by a severed hand. Severed hands don't generally float around writing things. You know, that would scare you in and of itself. But we don't know what it means. What does it mean? At that point, the queen, I believe actually the queen mother, um, entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom this is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, and Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. As I said, I think this is actually the queen mother of, Nab in other words, Nabonidus' wife, uh, Natakris, it was quite possible that Nabonidus married a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar that would legitimatize his reign. Uh, remember, he got his office, office by bludgeoning somebody to death. Uh, so 
she greeted Belshazzar courteously, but she also with, has a hint of, pull yourself together, man. I mean, she, it's been translated, but when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried into the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king, don't be so pale and frightened. Just think, if he was trying to bolster Babylonian confidence, what's happening to Babylonian confidence at this point? I'd say it's an all-time low. Yeah. She reminded Belshazzar about Daniel, who was chief of the wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's day. The term, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, can also be translated the spirit of the holy god. So there's a little ambiguity there. Since she was a polytheist, though, that's why the plural is a very likely translation. Um, but we're not absolutely certain on that, because in Hebrew, though this is Aramaic, Elohim is a plural noun. Plural of majesty, plural, you know, maybe hinting at the, at the trinity. Well, some have said, well, the Aramaic plural would be the same thing. And we're not really certain. So it's either a spirit of the holy gods or the spirit of the holy god. The word father, again, can mean predecessor, as we talked about before. Now she said, call Daniel. Daniel's apparently in retirement now. He wasn't there at the court banquet. Um, doing the math, he's probably 81 years old. He's getting up in years now. Uh, the time between chapters 4 and 5, some interesting things happened. Yeah. Daniel had had two sets of visions. They're actually in chapters 7 and 8. These accounts are chronological up till chapter 6 with the, Daniel in the lion's den. But then they kind of backtrack. And chapter 7 takes place the first year that the Persians had taken over. So, uh, I mean, uh, before that, rather, chapter 9 is the first year the Persians took over. So it kind of backtracks on the visions. So he had had already the visions of chapter, of chapter 7 and chapter 8, which related to the four world kingdoms and also to specifically the Greeks and the Persians the next two kingdoms after Babylon. Daniel's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's first dream and those other visions indicate that Babylon was going to fall one day and that it would fall to the Persians. So Daniel had that information going into this. Daniel was also familiar with the prophet Jeremiah. We know that from Daniel chapter 9 verse 2. He's studying Jeremiah's scroll about the 70 years when that chapter begins. So we know that he's a student of Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah had prophesied Babylon's destruction by Persia and the subsequent return to Zion. For instance, in Jeremiah 50, it says, Do not conceal it, but say, Babylon has been captured. Bel has been put to shame. Marduk has been shattered. Her images have been put to shame. Her idols have been scattered. For a nation has come up against her out of the north that will make her land an object of horror and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They've gone away. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. And they will go along weeping as they go and it will be the, the Lord their God they will seek. And they will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. So, Babylon's destruction by Medes and Persian, then the return. 
But Jeremiah had also predicted 70 years of exile. The whole land, according to Jeremiah 25, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now Daniel knew he had been in exile for 66 years. So the time is drawing near. He knows the clock is running out. Jeremiah said that God would call, quote, according to Jeremiah 50, a sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the oracle priests, and they will become fools. Well, that was fulfilled, about as worthless as could be. A sword against her mighty men, and they will be shattered. A drought on her waters, and they will be dried up. That may have been a little hint, prophetic hint of what was going to happen. We'll see. Uh, the end would come. God told him, Jeremiah in chapter 51, Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers, because the Lord has aroused the spirit of the Medes, because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. For it is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. Lift up a single signal against the walls of Babylon. Post a strong guard. Station sentries. Place men in ambush, for the Lord has both purposed and performed what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your end. Heavy stuff. So Daniel knew Babylon's end was near. The queen mother extolled Daniel's abilities, suggested the king summon Daniel. She's confident he can solve the problem because he's skilled at the explanation of enigmas and the solving of difficult problems. The Aramaic word translated enigmas here means riddles. That Daniel can solve riddles or explain riddles. Which gives us a hint to the writing on the wall that's in the nature of a riddle of some sort. Uh, the Aramaic phrase translated solving difficult problems literally means untying knots. He can untie these knotty problems. A loosing of knots or deciphering of knotty problems. And notice, I, I just have to point this out because it's a little insight into Daniel's character, but even the Babylonians have to use Daniel's Hebrew name because he so, so successfully avoided using the Babylonian one. that they have, Even if they say Belteshazzar, they have to say, whose name is Daniel? <laughs> so... You can just hear Daniel going, my name is Daniel. Okay. <laughs> so, Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar rather, offered an incentive for the interpretation. He tries to bribe Daniel when he comes in. The king was, then Daniel was brought before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple, wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So he's brought before the king. Belshazzar 
ascertains his identity, but he also does in a way to belittle him and point out his exile status. Yeah. And Daniel is from the land whose God, Belshazzar, has been busy blaspheming. Didn't occur to him. And Belshazzar paid Daniel a bit of a compliment, though, concerning his ability. He said, I've heard all these good things about you. And he admitted that the Babylonian wise had again proved absolutely worthless. So the king flattered Daniel again. He says, you're able to solve difficult problems. You can literally loose knots there also. Then Daniel offers, I mean, excuse me, Belshazzar offers Daniel the royal robe, the chain of office, and authority as the third ruler that he had early offered. Now, Daniel had a very short and to the point reply to that. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Now, notice several things about this. Daniel did not begin with a formal salutation. There was no, O king, live forever. Because this king is not going to live forever. He's not going to make it through the night. And Daniel didn't flatter him. Daniel knew that he had been engaged in blaspheming his God. And Daniel, frankly, holds him in contempt. So he does not honor him with a proper formal salutation. And he answers rather sharply so that the king can keep his gifts. Turning down a gift in the ancient world is a real insult. Somebody offers you a gift and you decline it. That is a major insult. So he is definitely sticking his neck out there. This is holy boldness. Is he standing before somebody can snap his fingers and order him decapitated? And, you know, plenty, of, and has lots of soldiers around that would jump to the task. But he's got the boldness of the Lord here. He says, you know, you can keep your rewards. I don't want them. He indicates he's going to provide the king with an interpretation. And because he rejected the gifts, it's going to be an unbiased interpretation. He said, Daniel's not a prophet for hire. He is no Balaam. You, know, you don't buy Daniel and get... You know, nice, get him to say nice things about your kingdom. In addition, Daniel realized that the gifts would be of short duration. If, if the kingdom is falling that night, what does it matter to be third in command? You won't be in office very long. <laughs> so Daniel realized this is ridiculous. But then he proceeded to do something even bolder. He rebuked Belshazzar. He rebuked the king of Babylon to his face. And he started off by talking about Nebuchadnezzar's example. He said in verse 18, O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he displayed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whoever he wished, he spared alive. And whoever he wished, he elevated, and whoever he wished, he humbled. He began to lecture him. And one of my favorite moments from a national prayer breakfast was Bill Clinton getting lectured by Mother Teresa about abortion. And he had to sit there and take it. Because after all, it's Mother Teresa. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah. I'm going, this was boldness. She didn't care one whit 
that it was the President of the United States she was talking to. She answered to a higher power. God, God had been the one who had elevated Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel reminded Belshazzar of that. The source of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, glory, and majesty was God. St. Paul said, said to the Corinthians, What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you have a talent? Do you have an ability? God gave it to you. Have you achieved success? God gave it to you. Have you achieved high office? God put you there. And God can take you down. He had universal respect Nebuchadnezzar had. He had the power of life or death. In addition to sovereign, he elevated or humbled whoever he wished. God had truly elevated Nebuchadnezzar. But God also humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And he just gives him a short synopsis of chapter 4. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne. His glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind. And his heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. And that's quite a come down from the throne room. I don't think I'd want to you know, hang out with wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was sovereign because he could elevate people and humble people. And God's saying, no, I can elevate and humble you. So I'm the true sovereign. But he became arrogant and proud. God deposed him and humbled him. He did it with mental illness. But there's lots of ways he can take, he can take the, pride, the pride filled down. But he had the mental illness of boanthropy. And he ended up living like an animal. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God's the real sovereign. Arrogant kings are not in control. Pagan gods are not in control. The Most High God of Israel is in control. That's the reoccurring message of this part of the book of Daniel. That's what Daniel, and through him the Holy Spirit, wanted the Gentile powers to get. God's the one who's really in control. And then he turns the guns on Belshazzar. He quits preaching and goes to meddling. It says, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see, hear, or understand. Similar to the critique Isaiah had in, his, in the uh, 40s in his chapter 40s in his book, that these idols that people bow down to are deaf, dumb, and stupid. You know, they don't understand anything. They can't talk. They can't walk. They can't think. They can't, they're worthless. And then Isaiah says, and those that praise that bow down to them will become like them. Yeah. 
He said, these things that you praised are just blocks of wood, blocks of metal, stone. They don't see, they don't hear, they don't understand. But the real God, who does see, who does hear, who does understand, the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. The very next breath you take, if God decrees, that breath doesn't happen. Stop you that quick. Daniel accused Belshazzar to his face. Though he knew all these things, he knew all about Nebuchadnezzar's history, he didn't humble himself before the Most High God. Historian and philosopher George Santayana wrote that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that's what was happening. He was not remembering deliberately Nebuchadnezzar's story and so he was about to repeat it in a different way. Daniel convicted Belshazzar of his blasphemy and committing sacrilege. He pointed out that Belshazzar's idols neither see nor hear nor understand and he failed to glorify the true God who really is in control. There's, there's kind of a play of words here that uh, I, I like it that God likes puns. <laughs> that uh, in Belshazzar there's concerning Belshazzar's life that it was in God's hand. But he didn't acknowledge that. So what did God send with a message? A hand. He sent a hand. Now, Daniel then focuses on the inscription. Then the hand was sent from him. So it's verse after verse there. He's going, on one hand, his hand is in your, your life is in his hand. On the other hand, the hand was sent from him. And the inscription was written out. Now this is what the inscription was written out. Said. Mine, mine, tekel, upharisen. Daniel explained the message was from God, the very God that Belshazzar had blasphemed. And it's described as mine, mine, tekel, upharisen. Now it was impossible for the wise men of Babylon to understand. And I think there's several reasons for this. First of all, it may have not been divided up into words. Uh, there's a tendency in the ancient world to write things all crammed together. No word divisions. So it looked kind of like mana 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 tekel What is that? It doesn't mean anything. You know? uh, so you'd have to know how to divide it up. Then you'd also have to supply vowels for it because they didn't bother writing the vowels down. And so if it's in Aramaic, there's no vowels just like there isn't in Hebrew most of the time. So you don't know it's M-N-M-N-T-Q-L, you know, etc. And you're going, well, what's that? And then it might have been written as an anagram. Maybe it read this way or that way or, you know, you don't know. You can arrange it in a square handily. Um, so that would be hard to interpret. And with the wrong vowels, the words would have meant something very different, even if you could discern them. Uh, a mine a mene, rather, in, in Aramaic, means a mina, a weight. Uh, a mina is 50 shekels, or about one and a quarter pounds. The Aramaic word tekel is the same as the Hebrew word shekel, and it's a weight also. It's about four ounces. Or point four ounces, I'm sorry, point four. Uh, the word upharisen, the u part is just and, uh, comes from uh, pares, and that means half mina. Okay? Or 25 shekels. Or 0.625 pounds. Um, 
so what or a half of a shekel perhaps 0.2 ounces it's a half of something so they'd look at that and say okay that'd be like seeing a dollar a quarter and a dime written on the wall what do I make of that so they wouldn't know how to interpret it but Daniel said this is the interpretation of the message Mine, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. He took Mine as the verb uh, Manah, which means to number or reckon. Okay, God has counted all the days of your reign, is what he's saying, and he's reached the end of them. And then why did he repeat it? Well, that's how you showed emphasis. So this is being emphasized. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Um, the Aramaic verb to call means to weigh, to weigh. So that was the idea there. The Egyptians thought that hearts were weighed to determine the moral content of your life. You know, it's kind of a concept in the ancient world. If your heart was light, light and it weighed with a feather, then you were good. If it was all heavy and burdened with sin, then you'd have a heavy heart, and that would be bad. Well, he's saying, you are all weighed down with sin. You're not. You know, you don't have a pure heart. And you've been weighed on the scales and you've been found deficient. Upharisen. Now this is a pun inside of a pun. Uh, Pharis, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. He took Pharis as the Aramaic word paras, break in two. However, Daniel made a play on words between the Aramaic word paras, break in two, and the noun Peros, Persia, or Persian. So it's a pun inside of a pun, basically. See, I told you God likes puns. So, that was the description. You've been weighed, uh, excuse me, you have been numbered, and you're at the end. You have been weighed, you're found deficient. Your kingdom is, is divided, it's taken from you, and it's given to the Persians. That's the announcement. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with, a purple, with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Kind of sh- shocking actually because I would have thought more like he, and he ordered his soldiers to kill him on the spot. <laughs> but he didn't. Uh, it's possible he's still mocking and this was a way to kind of make fun of Daniel. Well, you know, I'll make good. Anyway, you know, enjoy being the third ruler of the short-lived Babylonian kingdom. Um, possibly, he was ashamed to break his word. It's also possible that he hoped to avert God's judgment by being nice to his prophet. Okay? But it's too late. This time, it's too late. Persian poet Omar Khayyam wrote, the moving finger writes and having writ moves on. Nor all your piety or wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line. Nor all your tears wash out a word of it. By that time, it was too late. Belshazzar's fate was sealed. And that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Belshazzar was killed that night, October 12th. 539 B.C. The Persians seized the the city almost without a fight. Cyrus had done the unthinkable. He diverted the Euphrates River. 
into a, res- into a reservoir and then his troops just march right under the wall on the dry riverbed. The Babylonians totally were unprepared. The Greek historian Herodotus noted they were celebrating a festival. He said this, Hereupon the Persians who had been left for the purpose at Babylon by the riverside entered the stream which now had sunk so as to reach about midway up a man's thigh and thus got into town. Had the Babylonians been apprised of what Cyrus was about or had they noticed their danger, they would never have allowed the Persians to enter the city but would have destroyed them utterly. For they could have made fast all the street gates which gave upon the river and mounting upon the walls along both sides of the stream would have, had, would have caught the enemy as it were in a trap. But as it was, the Persians came upon them by surprise and took the city. Owing to the vast size of the place, the inhabitants of the central parts, as the residents of Babylon declare, long after the outer portions of the town were taken, knew nothing about what had chanced. But they, as they were engaged in a festival, continued dancing and reveling until they learned about the capture all too certainly. They were totally unaware. Um, Masterstroke by Cyrus. The Babylonians were caught by surprise and thus began the second phase of the times of the Gentiles. The second empire, the Persian Empire. Now, Cyrus left his uh, trusted governor behind and that, I believe, is the man they're calling Darius the Mede. Okay? First of all, Cyrus was a Persian. Okay? There is another Darius, but he is much, much later. So that's probably not this guy. Uh, from a Babylonian viewpoint, though, this governor left behind over what was left of the Babylonian Empire would be a king from their standpoint. So, and note also, he received the kingdom. That's not the way you talk about a conqueror. This is somebody who has something given to them. They're appointed over something. A lesser ruler whose reign was given to him by a greater king. Also, the name uh, Darius is probably not his personal name. Daryush is perhaps a title. It means he who possesses. He who possesses the rule is the implication. So... Uh, this guy's name actually was probably Gobrias. And he was the governor that we know from history uh, Cyrus left behind in charge of Babylon. Thus ended the great Babylonian Empire. It only survived Nebuchadnezzar by 23 years. Now, the significance to this, there's a prophetic significance because there's going to be a future Babylon. We know about it from the book of Revelation. It's going to be the seat of the Antichrist power. I believe it's the city of Rome because John wrote, Here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven, the seven heads of this monster he saw uh, called Babylon are the seven mountains on which the woman sets. Well, Rome is well known to be built on seven hills. And so I think it's Rome. Some disagree and think Babylon will be rebuilt. It would be interesting to see from the ramparts of heaven which way it works out because I'm convinced I won't be here. Um, It too, though, is going to suffer destruction. And it says in Revelation 18, Woe to the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Personal application here. Belshazzar forgot the lesson of humility. In the face of God's sovereignty over human events, we should be humble. We should be humble as a country. Yeah, we should be humble individually. 
Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem called Recessional, and he wrote it for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. And actually, it wasn't very well received because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear how great the British Empire was, how the sun never set on the British Empire. That's not what Kipling wrote. Part of his poem reads this way. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. May we never forget that it is the Lord God who is sovereign. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your rule, for your just and equitable and loving and powerful rule over the affairs of man. We put ourselves in your hands and look to you and not to human rulers. Especially we look for the coming of Jesus Christ again to rule this earth. Come Lord Jesus. In your name we humbly pray. Amen.